Those of us that are remaining, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians. You may have to forgive my voice a bit this morning. It may be a two-cup water morning. That's the cold weather. But we'll persevere on together. It's not my voice that's sweeter than honey. It's the Word of the Lord. So please stand with me if you would. Our text this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 22. Hear now the Word of the Lord that is inerrant, sufficient, And authoritative. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you have brought us this word this morning. And we pray you would use your word to illumine our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever had a conversation that you don't get to finish? Not the kind where you're called away by a cell phone or a crying child, but a conversation that you're in the middle of and... Someone butts in. Someone already knows what you're going to say. And they jump to a conclusion and they start talking for you. You know who are most famous for this are lawyers. I explained this to someone this past week. You know, when you're charging someone $300 an hour and they expect you to fix their problem for about $65, You don't have time to listen to the whole story. You get a little bit of it, and you say, okay, let me cut to the chase here. I know what your problem is. Let me tell you what you ought to do. But it's not just lawyers that do that, too, is it? We see it all the time with our spouses, with friends, with bosses, with coworkers. Our sentences get finished for us. Someone knows what's in our mind, and they're going to finish it. And it happens very often as we're having discussions, or we might call them debates, a little bit more civil than arguments, about the last minute or minute and a half of when we're speaking, the person we're speaking to isn't even listening. They're formulating already what they're going to say. That can be frustrating, can it? Especially when someone thinks they know what you're thinking and they don't. And that's the case here this morning with the Apostle Paul. And He's not just saying it to the Galatians. He's not just saying it to those bad Judaizers. He's saying it to you and to me. Because he knows that the Galatians, and now we, are reading this book, and it's been a bit of a broken record, hasn't it? 
It's not by works, but it's by faith. It's not by law, but it's by the promise. You cannot earn your salvation. You must trust in Jesus Christ. There's a way in which I've been kind of preaching the same sermon about the last eight or nine weeks with some variations and different examples. And so Paul gets to the point where he could probably see in his mind's eye someone saying, all right, Paul, then who even cares about the law? What good is the law anyway? If the law is so bad and you spent all this time telling me how I don't need the law, why did God even give it? And of course, there might be frustration. It might also be that the Judaizers were hoping to score some points here. Well, Paul, if the law is so unimportant, why did God spend so much time in it? Why are there five books of our Torah? Why is a good chunk of the Bible we hold the law? What's going on here? And so Paul anticipates this in the Galatians and in us. And he's going to begin a process now of describing why God gave the law. We're going to look at it for the next two weeks. Our text is going to only slightly overlap. We're going to look at verse 22 both this week and next week. And it's appropriate because Paul is about to move from the indicative, this is who you are in Jesus Christ, to the imperative. This is now how you live because you are in Jesus Christ. And before he does that, he's going to explain why the law is important because the law is going to have an awful lot to do with how we live. And so Paul gives us here this morning three reasons. My reasons here are coming from the text. You may be familiar with the classic systematic treatment, which I completely subscribe to, of the three uses of the law. But that's not what Paul's covering here in this short passage. We're actually not even going to touch on the third use of the law today. The law is a rule of life for the believer in Christ. Because Paul is he's laying a foundation here. And he's going to say... Very plainly to the Galatians, why did God give the law? Well, first, it's because we sin. Because we sin, we need the law. Now, that's interesting. And he says there's something else involved here, too. It's not just that we sin. We are always seeking another way of salvation. So God had to give the law because we seek another way to be right with him. You can already sense the connection to what Paul has been saying in the previous chapters. And then finally he says, you know, I've been making a lot of hay about the promise. But let me tell you, the law serves the promise. They're not contrary. They go together. And the law actually aids and helps and clarifies the promise of God. So these three things we'll see. Because we sin, because we seek another way, and because... It serves the promise. Let's begin then at verse 19, where Paul asks the question in a very terse manner. That's fancy for short and abrupt, kids. In a very terse manner, he says, well, why then the law? What's the reason for the law? It was added because of transgressions. That's interesting. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was added because of transgressions. I thought the law and the violation of the law were transgressions. 
Why is the law added because of transgressions? Well, three reasons. First, as we look at this text, we'll see that the law is added because it prevents sin. Now, this is rising up from all of Paul's argument. He's been talking about all of mankind not able to please God, not able to work for God, all of mankind breaking the law, all of mankind fallen in Adam. There's no exception. You are not going to meet the perfect person next week. Not even if you drive to San Antonio. Not even if you drive all the way clear to Florida or California. Everyone is under sin. Now, that's a problem, isn't it? It's not fun to live in a world filled with sin. We don't like sin, do we? We don't like it in ourselves, and we don't like it in others around us. We don't like it when others hit us, or cheat us, or lie about us. Do we? And God says, because of these transgressions, I've given my law. The law prevents sin. You see, Paul is describing here that because we have transgressions, we need the law to restrain sin. You see, this is not just an academic question. The Pharisees in Acts 21 walked right up to Paul and they said, you know this guy, this is the guy that's trying to ruin the law. He knew that's what people said about him. And he says that's not the case at all. Because of transgressions, we have the law. Have you ever thought about the universality of prohibitions? What do I mean by that? I mean that no matter where you go, there's a law against murder. Pretty much no matter where you go, there's a law against theft. Any place we go, there's a law against adultery. And where there isn't that kind of law, whether it's either written in a book on a shelf or in people's norms, there's chaos, right? Could you imagine living in a society where anyone could walk up at any time and hit someone over on the head with a club and no one would do anything about it? Could you imagine living there? We're getting to that point in some places in our society, aren't we? And people are afraid to leave their homes because there's a breakdown in morals. There's a breakdown in society, and they don't think the police can help. They call them the thin blue line. There's not enough of them. We don't know what to do. So what do we do? We go and hide. We flee the night. We either try and get as far away as we can by moving, or if we can't move, we buy 15 deadbolts and we lock our doors, and we pray for the night to go away. But you see, God has given us His law so that we might know what is good for us. And that sin might be restrained. It is not a coincidence that all civil societies have laws against these sorts of things. The Bible tells us that God has written it on our hearts. He sees sin. He knows their sin. He knows the result of the fall. And so he gives his law. So often people think of the Ten Commandments as restrictive and horrible. But really, they're the greatest blessing that the Lord gives us before the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the perfect place to live where God's law is honored. That's what heaven will be like. There will be no sin. Because there is sin, we need the law 
to prevent it. But the law doesn't just prevent sin out there in society. That might be officially what we might call the first use of the law, of our three. But the law also reveals sin. Have you ever thought about how you know something is wrong? You may say, well, my conscience. There's that little voice in the back of my head that tells me I shouldn't be doing this, right? Kids, when you're taking a snack that you know you're not supposed to, but you know mom and dad are too busy to look, and something nags at you, right? I know I shouldn't be doing this, but oh, I just really love that cookie or whatever it is. But you see, our conscience is informed by God's law written on our hearts. Paul puts it this way in Romans. He says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3, verse 20. He says it even more boldly in Romans 7, in that great chapter where he's struggling with obeying the Lord. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. See, Paul says, I know what's wrong because God tells me. It's because things are wrong because God says they're wrong. It's in his nature. There's not some objective standard of right and wrong that God has to conform to. No, things are wrong because they are displeasing to God. Because He is perfectly holy and perfectly good and perfectly loving. And if we want to know what is right and what is wrong, we will listen to God. We will listen to His Word. Listen to His law. The law shows us not only that there is sin, but it shows us the standard that we have to meet up to, else we sin. It's not just the fact that there is a law out there, it shows us how high the standard is. And our Lord is wonderful at illustrating this for us. He says, you think you shall not murder means don't pick up an axe. Let me tell you, it means being unjustly angry in your heart. You think... Don't commit adultery has to be a physical act. He says, no, if you look on a woman with lust, you've broken the law. The standard is so high. And this is proving Paul's point from earlier. He's saying no one can work. No one can meet God's standard. And the reason is because the standard is so high. And we see it and we see our helplessness. We see that we fall short and we immediately then begin to look for help. Isn't that true? Have you ever been in a situation when you've been over your head? You immediately start looking around for someone to help. Or you think, who can I call that can help me? That's what the law does. The law reminds us of something that's true, whether we think about it or not, that we need help. We need more than help. We need saving. We need a savior. The law does something else with respect to sin that's a bit unusual here to think about. Paul says, it was added because of transgressions. Paul says something similar in Romans 5.20 that's even sharper. Listen to this. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin, 
but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You hear that? The law causes more sin. Why is that? I thought the law, Paul said in Romans 7, was holy and just and good. Well, you see, the law is not the problem. We are the problem. The law reminds us of the standard and our broken hearts, our sinful, rebellious selves, before we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, desire with all our being to shake our fist at God, even if we don't want to admit He exists, and say, I'm going to do it my way, not yours. Parents, you experience that sometimes with kids, don't you? Even though you know something is the best way to do it, and you know it'll meet with the most success, and you know it's how it's going to be done, and you know it's the way your child likes to do it, they still do it the other way. Why? Just because they can't do what you've told them to do. This is something we see all the time. (laughs) You know, the problem is not the law. It's our reaction to it. Some of you would confess that in and of itself, handyman work is not evil. It is for me. Because my reaction to handyman work is a, some combination of frustration, anger, and desperation. And you can experience that with your own, with your own life, right? There are things that just drive you nuts. They don't drive you nuts. They cause you to sin because it wells up from from a heart that needs to be sanctified and we all have a saying about this too don't we it's the forbidden fruit that's the sweetest right if you want to make sure someone steals some apples from an apple grove you put up a sign that says no trespassers don't take the apples and immediately somebody walks by and goes those must be really good apples i'm going to take me one That's our reaction in our nature to the law. The law is added because we sin. But it's not just because we sin, because the law is related not just to sin, but it's related to salvation. You see, at the same time that the law is with respect to our sin, it also advises us against seeking another way of salvation. Now, Paul has been saying all along, the promise tells you, believe God. Jesus Christ's life tells you, justification by faith. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit tells you, you have justification by faith. And now he says, you know what? Even the law tells you, you must be justified by faith. This is an entire chorus singing out the praises of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 19 at the end here, he says... This law was given until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. He says the first thing about the law is that it's temporary as an administration. One commentator puts it this way that I think is a really good way to remember it. The law as a system is from Mount Sinai to Mount Calvary. Now, does that mean that the law goes away? No, because it's an expression of who God is. But the law as a system with its sacrifices is temporary. It is a temporary means of God dealing with His people. And he emphasizes this here. He says, 
it's added until the offspring should come. And who is the offspring? Bible students, we saw that seed. The seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. So until Jesus Christ came, the law was added. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given. The law was given for a purpose, so that the promise in Christ could be highlighted. The language, if you have a chance this afternoon to read from verse 19 of chapter 3 through chapter 4, it's full of language of expectation of Jesus' coming. As a matter of fact, one of the verses we use very often on Christmas cards. I've used it myself. Chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This language is full of expectation. The whole purpose of the law is to await the coming, the consummation in Jesus Christ. Several of you are going to experience this very clearly in coming months. You're going to attend something called a wedding rehearsal. Now, if I were to say to you, you know, let's just skip the rehearsal, not even do it. All the mother-in-laws would start And the mothers, we can't do that. The brides would be in a panic. How will I know what to do? We can't skip that. Now, the grooms-to-be might say, well, that's fine with me. We just spend more time eating. But for the most part, anybody that's really concerned that the day go perfectly is going to say, no, we can't skip that. But if I said to you, well, then you know what? If we have a good rehearsal, let's just call it a night. Let's call it a week. Let's not bother with the wedding the next day. I would get horrified looks from everyone, including the grooms-to-be. You kidding me? That should be our approach to the law. It's necessary to point out to us the substance and significance of Jesus Christ, but it is not the consummation. Don't forget about it. Don't think it's worthless, but don't think it's the end-all, be-all. That's the law. Now, this was not the view of the Jews. The Jews thought that the law was eternal. The Jews thought and think today that it is the end-all and be-all. Well, of course they do, because they haven't accepted the coming of the Messiah. So they're focusing on the handmaiden. It's like a groom spending all his time at a wedding looking at the bridesmaid instead of the bride. The Lord Jesus Christ is the substance. We cannot seek another way. And Paul says it's not just that the law is temporary. The law actually has middlemen. I thought about using the term intermediary, but I thought middlemen's a better way for us to think about this, right? Even the kids, I think, know what a middleman is. Someone out there somewhere makes stereos or furniture or food. And how does it get to you? Someone else, usually several someone else's, gather it, put it in a truck, ship it, unload it, and get it ready for you, right? Otherwise, you'd have to fly to Korea to buy a CD player. 
But the law is kind of like that as well. It is given to us secondhand, through intermediaries, Paul says. He says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. The Bible tells us that when the Lord was on Mount Sinai, part of what was going on with the fire and the flame and the thunder were angels attending the giving of the law. How do I know this? It doesn't necessarily say it very clearly in Exodus. I know it because I have an inspired commentary. I have Acts chapter 7, where Stephen tells us that the angels were involved. I have Hebrews 2, verse 2, that tells me that if we reject the law which was given by angels, how much more punishment will we have if we reject the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, it's a part of the pomp and the circumstance of the law, and the Judaizers would have loved that. Well, look how important the law is. It took a bunch of angels to bring that. You know, celestial beings. And Paul turns their argument right against them, and he says, it didn't come directly from God. Intermediaries were involved. It's not like the promise. God didn't speak to Abraham through angels. He spoke to him the promise. God didn't speak to Adam and Eve through intermediaries. He spoke directly the promise. Paul might even say strongly, every redemptive act is directly from God. That should be especially vivid to you now. For Jesus Christ, one of his names is what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. In that final redemptive act, God himself comes on the scene. Doesn't think it above himself to take on a body. So directly does he want to deal with us. Walks around with three years with a bunch of bumbling fools, like you and me, who just don't get it and don't understand it. And he slowly and patiently teaches them. Just like he does now to us through his word. God is directly involved. This promise is direct. Verse 20, we won't dwell on much, except for I'll tell you that it's been said, the, almost every commentator has this to say about it. Some previous commentator said there's about 300 interpretations of this verse. No one seems to really understand what this means, except I will say this, that the Lord is drawing our attention through this verse to His direct involvement with us because God is one, is the Jewish confession. You know how we read from the Westminster Confession? If you were a Jew, your confession would be Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Paul's drawing our attention to the difference between the direct relationship with God and with intermediaries. And finally, Paul tells us that you can't use the law because it doesn't give life. He's been hinting at that for about a chapter and a half. But now he says it directly. He says in verse 21, If a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's what we call technically in preacher talk a contrary to fact condition. We might think about it this way. Paul's saying to them, don't even think about it. Let me tell you, if I had a... One of the things I have said, and you've probably heard me say is, yeah, and if I had a rocket ship attached to my back, I could fly to the moon. Not going to happen. 
Well, if I had a law that could give righteousness, then I'd have righteousness by the law. Guess what? Not going to happen. <laughs> it's completely contrary to fact. And Paul emphasizes it here. It's not just the law. You'll notice here our text says a law. The language almost has the sense of any God-given law. Any law that God could give would not give life. It's not because the law is bad. It's not because the law is imperfect. It's because that's not the design of the law. The law is not a life giver. The promises. Don't try and use a screwdriver as a hammer or a saw. Even I know that. It's not what it's meant for. Don't try and use the law to give yourself life and power. It's not meant to. It's meant for a lot of good things. There are a lot of good things you can use a screwdriver for. Just not a saw. The law is not a source of life. Well, we've seen here that the law is given. Why does God give the law? Because we sin. And secondly, because we seek another way and we need to be prevented from doing that. But finally, Paul says that the law was given because it serves the promise. You'll notice what he says here in verse 19 beginning. He says, the law was added because of transgressions. The law is secondary. Paul's just repeating what they should already know. He says, you remember? Promise, 430 years, law. It's not law, then promise. Promise, then law. The law is secondary. It is subsequent. So how could it be primary to the promise? It doesn't even come first. And he says it's not just timing. He says it's in addition. The word here that's used in the Greek for in addition is very striking. It means added on top of something else that already exists. It's so striking a word that we have some ancient fathers changing it because they don't like it. They make it a different word because they don't like the fact that this seems to mean that the law is on top of something that's already sufficient, namely the promise. But this is the way the Bible works. What does it mean to have something added after the fact? Well, let me give you an illustration from the New Testament that you all are probably very familiar with. Speaking of jumping to conclusions, you can finish my sentence here. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be what? Same word. You seek first the kingdom, then these things are added. They're added on top of the kingdom. They're not more important than the kingdom. They come along with the kingdom in addition. That's the way the law works. It's... What Paul was saying in Romans 5.20, remember he said the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace came on in addition. There's no sin too great for the grace of God. The grace of God comes on in addition and takes care of it. And this tells us that God is not caught by surprise. Now, when I say that, you think, of course, I know that. But think through this theologically. If God is not caught by surprise, then the law was always a part of his plan. It was not a mistake. There are people that think the law of God was a mistake. 
and that Israel should have said on Mount Sinai, don't give us this law, take it away from us, we want grace. The law is not a mistake. It's a part of God's plan. It also tells us that God's plan was always to intend justification by faith. Because if he had intended justification by law, he would have given it first. But he didn't. From the beginning, God intended justification by faith. So our proper response to the law is what? Faith. Seeing the primacy of faith. And it's not just that the law is secondary. The law also shows us the curse of God. And this helps us to understand the promise. Look at verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. The but there is very strong. It's the strongest way that Paul could have said but in the Greek. He says, well, if there was a law that could have given life, then we could have had life by the law. But let me tell you this, that's not the case. The scripture imprisons everyone. It's as if, let me give you another modern saying to use this. It's as if someone walked up to Paul and said, Paul, no way. Paul said, way, absolutely. <laughs> He's drawing a really sharp contrast. He wants the Galatians to get back on track. And this is parallel language. Look here. He says, all of us are under sin. And now he says, we are under the curse. All live under sin. And that's like being under the curse up earlier in chapter 3. Everyone is under the curse. And the scripture that Paul is talking about here is very likely the scripture he references in verse 10. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by the things in the book of the law. Deuteronomy 27, 26. But he says the scripture because he's saying it's the whole message of the Bible. It's not just that one verse. It's all over the Bible. He says to the Galatians, if you got time, like two weeks, I'll walk you through. It's all over the place. The law shows the curse, but the law also finally shows faith. We look at the law, and we so often want to put the law against grace. To say, well, I'm for grace, I'm not for the law. And we love to point at others and say, well, you're a legalist. Or we love to excuse our behavior or the behavior of others by saying, well, if I had a nickel for every time I heard this, well, I'd just like to err on the side of grace. Grace doesn't have a side, and law doesn't have a side. You know, there's a, there's a wonderful illustration used by a couple of commentators. This is not original, but it's wonderful. He says, in the late 1980s, the Chicago Cubs did the Christian church an incredible service. And you're thinking, the Cubs? The Chicago Cubs acquired two players, Vance Law and Mark Grace. And they were on the same team, and they worked together. You hit the ball at Law at third, and he threw right to Grace. Out. And they batted 1-2. 
well, actually, in the order, they were five, six, but they were right next to each other, teammates. That's how grace and law are. They work together. The law shows us faith. The law shows us grace. It shows us working together. Paul says in Romans 4, he says, The law came in on the side that we might know grace. The the illustration he's using is the law is kind of like a side road. You ever been out on a side road? But Paul says it's a side side road to the main road. You don't stay on the side road to go to its destination because it doesn't have one. It feeds into the main road. That's the way the law is. If we were to stay on that side road, using our illustration, the side road goes to the hangman's noose, to the electric chair, to the cross and death. But it doesn't lead there. It leads us onto the main road, the king's highway. Kids, think about this now because you're going to be studying Pilgrim's Progress. The King's Highway, where Pilgrim walked to the celestial city where was life and light and joy. The law leads us there because it doesn't seek its own end. It seeks to point us to the one, the offspring, who was to come. This is the way the law works in one respect. We're going to look at some other respects Next week, we're going to specifically look at how the law points us specifically to Jesus Christ. But I'd like you to think this week a bit more highly about the law. Not opposed to grace, but as I being on the same team, God's team, God's design and His plan for your life and salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word that speaks so highly of your law. And yet, your word tells us everywhere of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, O Lord, that you would bless us this morning. That we would seek you in your word, in your law, in your promises. For life is found with you. We ask all this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.